If you brought your Bibles tonight, please open with me to Leviticus, Leviticus chapter 8. We've got a couple of selections tonight from our topic as we march through this book as best as we are able. Leviticus chapter 8, beginning in verse 1. Let's give our attention to the reading of God's Word. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take Aaron and his sons with him, and the garments, and the anointing oil, and the bull of the sin offering, and the two rams, and the basket of unleavened bread, and assemble all the congregation at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And Moses did as the Lord commanded him, and the congregation was assembled at the entrance of the tent of meeting. And Moses said to the congregation, This is the thing that the Lord has commanded to be done. And Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. And he put the coat on them and tied the sash around his waist and clothed him with the robe and put the ephod on him and tied the skillfully woven band of the ephod around him, binding it to him with the band. And he placed the breast piece on him and in the breast piece he put the urim and the thummim. And he set the turban on his head, and on the turban in front he set the golden plate, the holy crown, as the Lord commanded Moses. Skip down now to verse 22. Then he presented the other ram, the ram of ordination, and Aaron and his sons laid their hands on the head of the ram. And he killed it, and Moses took some of its blood and put it on the lobe of Aaron's right ear, and on the thumb of his right hand, and on the big toe of his right foot. Then he presented Aaron's sons, and Moses put some of the blood on the lobes of their right ears and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the big toes of their right feet. And Moses threw the blood against the sides of the altar. Then he took the fat and the fat tail and all the fat that was on the entrails and on the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with their fat and the right thigh. And out of the basket of unleavened bread that was before the Lord, he took one unleavened loaf and one loaf of bread with oil and one wafer and placed them on the pieces of fat and on the right thigh. And he put all these in the hands of Aaron and in the hands of his sons, and waved them as a wave offering before the Lord. Then Moses took them from their hands and burned them on the altar and with a burnt burn offering. This was an ordination offering with a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord. And Moses took the breast and waved it for a wave offering before the Lord. It was Moses' portion of the ram of ordination, as the Lord commanded Moses. Then Moses took some of the anointing oil and of the blood that was on the altar and sprinkled it on Aaron and his garments, and also on his sons and his sons' garments. So he consecrated Aaron and his garments, and his sons and his sons' garments with him. Turn over back to Exodus chapter 19. One more passage in Exodus 19, verses 5 through 7. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine. And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. This is God's Word. You know, the more that you get to know uh, people, I feel like it's more fun to sort of take guesses at the kinds of things that uh, those people believe that make them unique. 
I, I found to people to be fascinating. It's why one of the reasons why I love my job. But one of those reasons is because of this almost weird connection that exists between the habits of your life uh, and the way in which you see the world. Have you ever thought about this? Uh, for instance, you know, it's, it's interesting if you were to interview your sort of um, fastidious, tidy, perfectionistic friends, you're likely to discover that they tend to view the world as a place that's governed by rules. Rules which, if properly followed, will uh, lead you to happiness and satisfaction in life. On the other hand, though, turn around and interview the same, uh, another kind of person who is more, um, I don't know, kind of haphazard, uh, carefree, uh, 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 disorganized maybe. And you're likely to see them tell you that they believe the world is a kind of place where, you know, randomness reigns. I mean, who really honestly can say what's true? It's, the truth is the gray is much more obvious than the black and white. Have you ever noticed that? Now, granted, those are wild-eyed overgeneralizations. But they're there to prove a simple but often overlooked point, and that's simply this. We as human beings tend to develop what I'm going to refer to tonight as life patterns. Patterns of living and existing and behaving that are in keeping or mirror the way in which we view the world around us. Does that make sense? There's a direct connection between your view of how the world fits together and the behaviors that you exhibit. Does that make sense? Pretty simple concept, I think. Okay, but here's the question. What if there's a God? <laughs> and, and what if that God's definition of reality, he wants for us to reflect in the way in which we behave? You follow the connection? In other words, what if his definition of reality is intended to be central and our life patterns are to follow that, right? What do you think the world would look like? The answer is what we just read in this section of Leviticus chapter 8 and following. Because in Leviticus chapter 8, you get the description of the ancient priesthood. When God took his people and said, I want to establish among you a unique group of people that I'm going to call priests. And you begin to wonder after a while what in the world these people were for. And I simply want to uncork it for you tonight early on before we launch into it. And it's simply this. God said, I want you to be priests to me in order to show the world in sort of a shadow form the way in which my reality really looks like. Does that make sense? In other words, you'll miss reading Leviticus. And to be honest with you, this is a classic way to mess up reading Leviticus. Most of the people that you see sort of caricaturing Leviticus will do so because they misread it in this way. That is, they're not reading it as if it's a shadow. God gave these things as images, as glimpses of what he was going to do in the gospel in the New Testament. Does that make sense? In other words, we're looking at the signs, not the fulfillment of the sign. But there's such great value in looking at the sign because it helps fill out a greater picture of what the reality really is. That's why we're approaching this in this way. So that in Leviticus 8, God says, here's what I need. I've given you sacred space. I've given you sacred actions in the sacrifices. I'm even going to establish for you, as we get on later in the semester, sacred time. But you know what? There's also sacred people. 
There's a handful of individuals that are sacred by their very office, known as the priesthood. So the priesthood comes to us as a model of what God has done. First of all, in Jesus, who is ultimate, the ultimate high priest, what he's done in his church, in Aaron's sons, the Levitical priesthood, and then finally what he's doing in the world, in his kingdom, by making all of us a kingdom of priests. Those are my three points that I want to establish for you. The high priest, the Levitical priests, and finally a kingdom of priests. And embedded in the center of this whole concept is a concept that is so beautiful that I'm telling you it'll transform the way in which you see the world. Tonight we dive into the priesthood, okay? First of all, the first thing that God is talking about is this guy named Aaron. You need to remember that guy. This is the brother of Moses, and he is established among the Jewish people as a very central figure. He's the high priest. In other words, in any ways, he's the spiritual head of all of Israel, of the whole Jewish nation. In other words, he was the one who said and embodied in himself the go-between between you and God. In other words, if you were going to approach God, you had to have somebody go between you. Only the high priest could go back into the very back of the temple. Do you remember that back room called the Holy of Holies where the very presence of God was uh, uh, pictured for his people there? And he could only do it once a year on a very particular day called the Day of Atonement. Hold on. In about three weeks, we're going to talk about the Day of Atonement, right? And he also had extraordinarily expensive clothing. That's what verses 5 through 9 were about. To talk about this this golden ephod. An ephod was just a little, honestly, like a large uh, uh, end of a a necklace, if you will. About yay big. That was covered in precious stones. He had a sash that was made of very uh, beautiful material. He had a breastplate that covered him that contained the urim and the thummim. Which we're not still exactly sure what that was. And he had a turban. But here's the deal. Most scholars will tell you that the very way in which Aaron was dressed was supposed to be something of a, of a small version of the tabernacle itself. Now bear with me for a second. I'm not trying to blind you with science here, but this is interesting if you look into it. All right, There's a great um, Old Testament guy by the name of Vern Poitras. You don't need to know his name. But he had a great line when he said, look, the priest was sort of a living version of the tabernacle. Here's what he says. He says, the high priest himself is sort of a vertical replica of the tabernacle. His garments correspond to the curtains of the tabernacle. His headband has an inscription, holy to the Lord, which corresponds to the most holy place, the holy of holies. His hands manipulate the blood that mediates between heaven and earth. His feet remain planted on the earth so that ears, hands, and feet are all consecrated with blood, which correspond to the consecration of each part of the tabernacle. Thus, now this is the key line, listen to this. He was not only a human being, sinful like ourselves, but a human being that was clothed in the very majesty of heaven. You see the point. In other words, he was showing to the people, I am your link. If you want to get to God, it's only going to be through me. There is a bridge that's been built, and guess what? That bridge is a living, breathing person. The high priest. Huge, unbelievably large responsibility. Now, 
I see the looks on your faces. <laughs> You've got that look like, and why would that ever be interesting to me on any day of the week other than Wednesday night at RUF, right? And now bear with me though. Because I think there's a religious notion here in the idea of the priesthood that you need to grasp. Because a priest functioned in your life in many ways the same way that a lawyer functions in your life now. A lawyer is, if you think about it, the very person who shows the court, who shows the, the members of the state and the jury for that matter, what you're like. Tim Keller had uh, hunted down an article that I've always found fascinating. I heard him put in a sermon years ago on a totally different passage where he was talking about a woman who had reached her 40th birthday. And having reached and passed my 40th birthday, I feel this woman's pain. But she was commenting in this article that by age 40, she had stopped knowing what she looked like. Here's what she meant by that. She said she suddenly started doing, taking kind of stock of her life And she realized that for most of her life, she had done nothing but edit the features of her life that she didn't like out of her life. (laughs) You know, she made sure that there was makeup to cover those spots. Right, ladies? Uh, That the unflattering photos were, you know, were creatively thrown away or in our day, detagged. Right? She, she said that she had grown perfectly skilled at, you know, looking at um, mirrors only from certain angles. <laughs> Sorry, I just thought of something funny. It really is funny how oftentimes when you see pictures on the internet, immediately there's an instinct in there, ladies, to kind of be like, a picture? Okay. <laughs> oh, you do it. Don't even look at me like that. We are people who walk around with a certain image of what we hope people see in us. That's hard to deny that that's a reality. And why? The answer is because all of us know instinctively that we cannot live with only our evaluation of ourselves. Um, Look, Our very existence screams the fact that we need a voice from the outside to come in and say that what you're doing is worthwhile. You can't can't do this for yourself. I know that there's a lot of artists out there that like to um, flatter themselves into thinking this. Like, I don't care what people say about my art. I'm here for art for art's sake. And I do it because I think it's beautiful. Hmm. Are you really going to be able to live how much of your life with a complete rejection of all those around you, a complete, utter sort of, uh, um, sort of um, marginalization from your peers, the people that you want to have the respect of, you really think you're going to be able to live that way? No one can live that way. And God looks and says, yes, that's exactly right, because I built you to know and to draw your life off of me. I am the only one who can offer to you an unfiltered version of yourself and have you survive it. For that reason, there always has to be a go-between. Your very life mirrors this, y'all. Arthur Miller, in his um, play, After the Fall, has a character who actually loses his belief in God. He He stops being able to believe. But strangely, even after getting rid of his belief that there is sort of an ultimate judge who sits, you know, on the bench of life, he still has this nagging ache. Listen to what he says. He says, I think my personal disaster began when I looked up one day and I realized that the bench was empty. 
No judge was in sight, and all that remained was an endless arguing within myself. This pointless litigation of existence. Boy, isn't that a good phrase? This pointless litigation of existence before an empty bench was another thing that I refer to as despair. Y'all, that's exactly what I'm talking about. And you're not very self-reflective about your life unless you've owned up that this is a giant motivator for you. This pointless arguing in my head of constantly wondering whether I'm measuring up. That deep abiding insecurity looks and screams that I need to go between. I need someone who can represent me. And so here's Aaron, (laughs) the high priest. But there's a problem, isn't there? Because he's fallen and fallible. Look, it's only a few chapters before we had here where we had the whole golden calf incident. I mean, Aaron, not weeks before this happens, is helping the children of Israel worship a golden image, which God had expressly forbid. And you're like, well, how is that guy going to represent me? Ah, that's why you have the consecration ritual. All of this stuff, the blood on the lobe, the blood on the thumb, the blood on the big toe of the right foot, for heaven's sakes. It's all screaming to say, even this guy isn't perfect. And you know what it's all saying? It's all saying, therefore, there's got to be one to come. There's got to be somebody else that represents you. It's screaming. In the ritual itself, it's screaming. This is not the guy. But it's going to give you a picture of the guy. So that when you get fast forward to the book of Hebrews, chapter 5, verses 1 through 7, we get the writer saying that Jesus is our high priest. You now have one who can perfectly do it. He's not bound by Aaron's ways. He doesn't offer bulls or blood, but he offers himself. And the atonement that he makes is not incomplete, but complete. It's not temporary, but it's permanent. In other words, Jesus comes and says, I'm the only spiritual head that you can live with. In other words, he is the only one who can end the pointless litigation of existence that is the motivating factor behind so much of human behavior, the high priest. Secondly, we get a different kind of priest. We get Aaron's sons. These were the people, it's not just Aaron's sons, but it's also the entire Levitical class of people who actually were there to fulfill other functions in and around the temple. Their responsibility was to bring the worshiper to help represent him to God. In other words, to be something of a go-between also and to represent them. And for that reason, even they had to go through a huge ordination and consecration ritual. I mean, days of consecration, tons of ritual and preparation in the process. So then in verse 22 through 30, we find out that this is where we get all the blood that's smeared all over them. Because these priests, right, were intending, he gets blood on his ear, to be in many ways uh, the, the, the... uh, the, vo- the reception piece of God's voice. Blood was smeared on their hands because they were to do God's work. Blood was smeared on their feet so that they could actually walk in righteousness. In other words, God said, I'm separating out a group from among you, now bear with me, of people that could serve God by teaching you God's words, by guiding you in wisdom, by interceding for you with prayer, and by leading you in worship. Right? Now, (laughs) but you very quickly discover as you read through the book of Leviticus, or really any of the Old Testament for that matter, that you find that if Aaron was like um, less than perfect, um, his sons were downright awful. 
I mean, honestly, you, you can't read a page of the Old Testament, quite honestly, and not find how much judgment God brought down these poor people, these poor, pathetic priests, right? I mean, galactic failure throughout the Old Testament of the priesthood, right? Over and over again. Once again, we find that even in these chosen individuals, we feel like we're waiting for something. We're waiting for something, for an ultimate fulfillment. Ah, well, then when we get to the New Testament, interestingly enough, we have people like the Apostle Paul talking very interestingly in places like First uh, Timothy chapter 5, uh, Ephesians chapter 4, who uses this Old Testament model of the priesthood to talk about certain individuals. Individuals called to be overseers, elders, deacons, officers of God, of Jesus' church, who are especially gifted to be pastors. And what are they called to do? Ah, You guessed it. Teach God's word. (laughs) Guide people in wisdom. Intercede for them in prayer. And wait uh, uh, and offer them uh, leadership in leading in worship. In other words, Paul saw those ancient priests as being modern-day pastors to function in his church. Now, look, I'm, I'm not completely unaware of the fact <laughs> that um, this is a, an amazingly self-serving message that I'm putting together right here. Uh, I realize that because I myself am an elder in my particular denomination. But look, bear with me for a second. <laughs> Maybe we, we shouldn't be quite as cynical as we are about these chosen leaders when we realize just how much emphasis the Bible puts on it. I realize that for you, you are a you possess, you're in possession of a generational mindset that looks at church and church leaders with a high degree of, you've got to be kidding me, to where it almost looks quaint for anybody to stand up and talk like this, that God, first, God has a vision of your Christian life as being assisted in <laughs> with these certain individuals whom he has called out to assist you in doing those important things, delivering to you God's word, praying for you on a regular basis, guiding you in wisdom, and leading you in worship. I know that sounds quaint, and your generation is more skeptical of that than ever before. And I'm here to say, that's okay. But here's the deal. It's actually true. Let me give you a verse from the New Testament that oftentimes shocks people the first time they hear it. Listen to Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. The writer says, Obey your leaders and submit to their authority. They keep watch over you as men who must keep, give account. Obey them. So that their work will be a joy and not a burden, for that would be of no no advantage to you. (laughs) As strange as it sounds, God envisions your spiritual life as being lived under the authority of these certain individuals. Uh, Look, y'all. An individualistic Christian who is about his Christian life, kind of just me and God, is a is unknown in the New Testament scriptures. The thought of you existing as a Christian outside of the leadership of a church just ain't in the New Testament. And I know, (laughs) I know this cuts across a grain in huge ways. But the Bible has no vision of it. It constantly understands you as a Christian of being involved in a larger body where guess what? There's other people who are spiritually ahead of you that have actually done some significant study in the scriptures 
and are in place in order to offer to you and to instruct you and to give you guidance in what the Word of God says. As foreign and odd and as weird as that may sound to us, right? Look, we can sum it up in this way. The New New Testament envisions your life as being guided by these people, though fallible, (laughs) trust me, but to instruct you there so that you can fulfill your own purpose in life. Okay, and that brings me to the third and final point. We see the high priests, we see the Levitical priests, but the reason, but I wanted to include that section from Exodus because there's a third priest that you don't get in Leviticus, but that you only see about in Exodus. And that is that God looks and says that if you listen to me only in the book of Leviticus, you might think that all that the Jewish people did was go and worship at the temple. <laughs> I mean, all these sacrifices, all these things. What are you doing this afternoon? What do you mean, what am I doing? I'm going to the tabernacle. That's all we do, right? That's actually not the case, though. Because what we found is, what they found was, is that their job as Jewish people was to go to the world around them and be a witness to the other nations. That was absolutely central to these Jewish people. As a matter of fact, the earliest of promises that God made to, um, to Abraham in the first covenant, was to say, and when I do all these wonderful things with your descendants, Abraham, they will be a blessing to the Gentiles. When you hear the word Gentiles, think outsider. The job of my people is to do good to the outsiders and draw them in. That's the purpose. Now, I want you to think about the genius of this incredibly ordered society. And I think you can think of it best as in terms of concentric circles. They're in the very physical center of the camp. I'm talking the geographic center is the tabernacle. The very representation of God himself. One ring out from that is one individual, the high priest, specially called away to be holy. Having alone access into that place where he can represent God. The next concentric circle is God's chosen people to establish his church among people. And to represent the people to God. And then finally, you have the people on the outside ring who themselves exist to be the bridge for the nations into the presence of God. Do you follow how that works? That's the vision of the Christian life. Remember I said that your behavior, your way of acting in life tends to mirror what you believe reality looks like. And God says, do you want to see what reality looks like? Come see this tabernacle. Come meet these men because this is the way in which I prioritize life. Look, if, you, if, if Christianity interests you tonight, whether you consider yourself to be inside or outside, then I simply offer this to you, that in the center is the knowledge of God and of his holiness and of his righteousness that Christianity believes you were built for. But it looks one circle out from that and says, but you cannot go from that without a mediator. And Jesus Christ is God, and he's the only representative. He is the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, he says. One high priest. Beyond that, there's this organization. Yes, it's an organization. Yes, it's an institution. Called the church that is meant to be heaven on earth. The very way in which heaven will look should be what it looks like in the church. I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, you ain't been to my church. I know, but that's what it's supposed to be. 
And beyond that are the people of God gathering together in worship so that they can, they can vision cast with each other about how we're to be a blessing to the nations. That's it. You got it. Grasp that and you see the Christian vision of life. Boy, I wish we had more time to do some application on this, but one application, one thought. I get a lot of people who come and they say to themselves, you know, Les, I'd really love to, to be involved in RUF. I'd like to plug in. How can I do that? And I, I say the exact same thing to almost everybody. I look and say, it's a great idea. Bring a friend. Be someone that looks and sees this gathering as a place, like Will says, every single week where we can come and look through God's truth claims. They may reject them, but you may find life in them. And to do so in an atmosphere that's non-threatening, also known as the church. The people of God loving him and serving him, and in that context, want to be a blessing. That's it. Look, y'all, this is kind of what we're, we're about. And I recognize that for many of you, this sounds so foolishly optimistic. <laughs> Honestly, Les, really? That's what you hope to be accomplished here? How? And for many of us, we have grown so cynical to anything that even looks like religiosity simply because of how much maybe uh, our own church fell short. I know many of you are very critical of your church upbringing. Or maybe even for some of you, it's how far you fall short and wonder if I have any partaking of that particular thing. Hey, look, Notice one last thing, will you? And I'll, say, I'll mention this in closing. The clothing of the high priest was covered in jewels. Do you realize that to have looked at this individual was to see a living picture of an absolute beauty? And you see, Christians got this idea in their head from this Jesus character that if I know Jesus then God is going to look at me and the same way that a court looks at my lawyer. You know, if your lawyer is a goof, you look like a goof. If your lawyer is brilliant, then you succeed. But what if your representative is clothed in beauty? What it means this is that when we come to Christ and we know him, God sees you as an absolute beauty as one that sparkles to his eye, as one whom he has, as I've said week after week after week, is not merely tolerating, but delights in and takes joy in. Let me ask you, is that not vision enough to look and say, God, how would you change the patterns of my life to fit into that reality? Consider that an invitation. Let's pray. Then, Lord Jesus, would you invite us into that reality in the best way in which we know how to do, which is by you doing it. And, Lord, may we begin to see a vision of life that's different from the one that we oftentimes see. If we were to be honest with ourselves, then we would admit to you that our lives center around us, around our needs, around our desires, around our hopes for the future. And what we see in the tabernacle and in your priests and in this priestly class is a vision that you give to us of the way the universe really looks. But you've got to show us because our minds are full of false images. So, Lord Jesus, would maybe even tonight be an occasion in which you would bear witness of those things in our hearts? 
Would you show us what the world really looks like from your eyes? And how wonderful it would be if we would see that in these grainy, shadowy images from the book of Leviticus. Lord, to do as much would be glorious and poetic. And so we're asking you to work in us tonight. For we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.